Beloved Church of God, beginning our service before the Lord, let us stand and affirm the promise that relates to the door of our hope. Let the resurrection of Christ reign in our bodies. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we are grateful to your holy name for this once again privilege to be in this place that your hand has outlined for the worship of your holy name and allow your inheritance in the name of the covenant of blood to be lifted to heights unreachable to us and to break all evil and sin that binds us. May in the service be cursed as before all the works of devil, illnesses, poverty, premature death, demonic dependencies of forms of fears, depression, destruction, covetousness, ignorance, all of this, let it depart from the tents of your holy people and stand, Lord, in the place of your rest, you and the ark of your greatness. And may your saints be clothed in your salvation and may they rejoice before your countenance. Give us more from your Spirit. Fill us with your Holy Spirit and allow us to find your holy countenance. I present this service to your divine arms. Guide them with your uplifted hand, Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. May the Lord bless you. You may be seated.
Down the Via Dolorosa in Jerusalem that day. The soldiers tried to clear the narrow street, but the crowd pressed in to see the man condemned to die on Calvary. He was bleeding from a beating, there were stripes upon his back. And he wore a crown of thorns upon his head. And he bore with every step the scorn of those who cried out for his death. Down the Via Dolorosa, called the way of suffering, like a lamb came the Messiah, Christ the King. But he chose to walk that road out of his love for you and me. Down the Via Dolorosa all the way to Calvary. По дороге на Голгофу Иисус шел умирать. От побоев истекал Он кровью. На дне тяжелый крест и начали терновый венец. Словно огнец шел Мессия на Голгофу умирать. Как любит он меня и тебя, мой милый брат. The blood that would cleanse the souls of all men made its way to the heart of Jerusalem. All the way to Calvary.
And so, as always, before we begin to study the depths of our inheritance in Jesus Christ, the unchanging epigraph of our study of the Word of God in Jesus Christ is Luke 24, 44. Then Jesus said to his disciples, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. 
And so for us as partakers of the body of Christ, to share with Christ the fulfillment of all that is written about him in Scripture, we shall continue our study of our collaboration with the Holy Spirit and what is necessary to be done from our side so that we can receive the right to the power to put off our former way of life and put on the new form of life. That is, to dress our body into its new person, <clears throat> into the resurrection of Christ. The book of Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Of course, if you just read this place of Scripture and continue, this would have been just a slogan that would not give us any use or benefit. To fulfill this command, as we know, we need to utilize three charging and fundamental verbs. I would say destiny-impacting verbs, to put off, be renewed, and put on. We've noted that your decision regarding these three destiny-affecting actions, to put off, be renewed, and put on, will determine whether you transform yourself into a vessel of mercy or a vessel of wrath, or more specifically, will the accomplishing of your salvation come to pass? That is given to us in the format of a guarantee, or will we lose it forever, and in result, then our names be forever blotted out of the book of life. <clears throat> in a specific format, we have studied and looked at the first two questions and have been studying the third question. What conditions do we need to fulfill so that by the means of an already renewed mind, we begin the process of dressing ourselves into the power of our new person that is created in accordance to God in Christ Jesus in righteousness and holy truth? And when we speak of clothing ourselves into the power of our new person that contains the power of the resurrection of Christ in the all-armor of light, we conclude that we need God's help in the form of his redeeming mercy. The means of receiving any kind of help in the form of the inheritance of the mercies of God is weaponry of prayer or worship in spirit and in truth. Since prayer isn't just a man's means of communicating with God, but also a kind of legal and sacral right that a man gives heaven, a tool that activates the given law of God, man gives heaven this right so that heaven may intervene upon the territory of earth. God created man so sovereign that he himself wanted that he not be able to do anything on earth if man that is in his likeness will not give him the right to do it upon his conditions. Considering that the most powerful form of prayer is a continual prayer that does not back away from its goal until what is asked for is received, we together have been studying the format of continual prayer in the breastplate of judgment of the high priest, being a continual remembrance or memorial before God. A true unique item, and this specific item was the format of continual mem memory before God. All other formats, items were also a memory, but they were not a continual memorial. And God remembered Noah, and God remembered Abraham. 430 years they were in Egypt, and God remembered after 430 years. If he would not have remembered Noah, 
After 40 days, then, Noah, together with all of the animals, would have perished in this catastrophe and in these waves, and nothing would have happened, nothing else would have happened. But God, we know, He remembers specific, at specific times for specific purposes to accomplish a promise. But this is a continual memorial that is before Him. He didn't want a person to have a communication with Him that is interrupted. He is not there, he's not there, and suddenly they communicate. God wants to communicate with man every second, every minute, without interruption, without interference. And for this reason, he created the, this format of prayer that in the ancient times, in the law of Moses, was in the format of the breastplate of judgment, which was a continual memorial before God. The power of such a prayer is called to demonstrate the unlimited authority of God over our genesis in the allotted by him for us time and boundaries. Due to this, we came to the necessity to study the goal God pursues in his intentions when he urges and calls his children to become warriors in prayer. Not just simple warriors in prayer, but those that would continually be in, uh, be active, would not stop as warriors that would continually battle. And also in what way and upon what conditions God is able and desires to give man the right to become a warrior in prayer so that man can present the interests of God in implementing his inheritance in God. The interests of God are in our interests. His interests are that we enter the inheritance that he promised with an oath. According to the revelation of Scripture, our prayer as a warrior in prayer, identified in the virtue of the 12 precious stones of the breastplate of judgment, needs to be continual, persistent, diligent, with boldness, with reverence, with faith of your heart, seventh, with thanksgiving, eighth, with joy, ninth, in the fear of the Lord, and tenth, in the Holy Spirit. In the previous service, we, in a specific format, already looked at the essence of the first eight components that identified the state of the heart of a warrior in prayer as well as the quality of his prayer and stopped to study the ninth component, quality of continual prayer. This is the presence of the fear of the Lord in prayer or prayer that is made in a continual prayer that is done in the fear of the Lord. But first I would like to once again present the antonyms or opposite qualities of prayer that have already been a part of our studies because understanding the context or background of each quality, we will better understand the quality and character of true prayer. You determine clearly then what is the sign of, of prayer and what isn't. The antonym of continual is unfaithful or not continuing. This unfaithfulness and not continuing is in uh, artistic songs. They think when they sing, they're doing something interesting. I go far from you, then I come close to you, and they sing this very with great expression, and they 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 sing songs where they're going. They go to bars and other places, and then end up in the church again and are glad to be here again. But God doesn't have a relationship with such people that are not con continual. Uh, for his children, there's the breastplate of judgment. 
He doesn't want sin to interrupt the, the relationship. Let's not have these songs where we just go far from God and come again. The antonym of, of uh, continual again is unfaithful and not continuing. Pers- the antonym of persistent is resisting. Imagine a husband that says, today I love you, and for a couple of days he uh, disappears and then appears and she says, where have you been? Oh, he said, there was a beautiful woman, I couldn't uh, uh, control it, and uh, and 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 he says, well, if I couldn't, didn't do this, I wouldn't be a man. And so they defend these actions. They fall. Uh, they fell. They fall into sin and say. He says, I, men say, I'm afraid. I, I I run away because if this woman passes me, she might offer something to me. These are Christian people that say these things, baptized by the Holy Spirit. This is not people of the world. The antonym of uh, persistent is, again, resistant. Uh, It needs to be persistent. So resisting, a person resists and does not want to uh, work in his prayers. The antonym of diligence is laziness. The antonym of boldness is audacity. Antonym of reverence is forsaking and hatred. The antonym of the faith of God is unbelief or resisting the faith of God. The antonym of thanksgiving is being unthankful or hard-hearted, also stiff-necked. Recently, I heard as one Jew had said, the scriptures call us uh, stiff-necked and he was pri- like boasting about it and not understanding that being stiff-necked is what uh, brought you to uh, uh, to not being even, uh, to your country being uh, destroyed and and this country disappearing for, uh, for a long period of time. This stiff-necked, uh, character, this quality is what, what brought this about. So when people are not thankful to God, they're not thankful when someone does something for them, they're not thankful because they always expect that you're required. They expect also more than what you're doing. And when we you do something good for them, they are angry. Why is it that you could have given me more. They think that you are obligated to give to them. No one is obligated anything, but these are unthankful people. Uh, The antonym of joy is sorrow and brokenness, which dries the bones. And the antonym of the fear of the Lord is the fear of man. As in the previous qualities of prayer, it is necessary for us to look at four classical questions. First, from what wellspring does the fear of the Lord flow? And what qualities or criteria does the fear of the Lord have? In Scripture. Second, what purpose is the fear of the Lord supposed to fulfill within our relationship with God and with each other and with all of the world? Third, what price or what conditions do we need to fulfill so that we can be filled with the fear of the Lord in prayer? Or how do we keep or increase the fear of the Lord within our heart? And fourth, by what results do we need to examine ourselves on the presence of the fear of the Lord within our heart? In the previous services, we in a specific format already studied the essence 
response of the first two questions. And before we begin to study the third question, I, in short formulations, want to remember the essence of the fear of the Lord, which is contrary to the fear of man. We've noted that the fear of the Lord and the fear of man are two absolutely different programs that come from two diametrically opposite wellsprings, identifying the program of eternal life that comes from God, containing the quality of the nature of God, and the program of eternal death, coming from the entrails of the fallen cherubim, containing his quality and his nature. I more than once have seen angels of darkness and angels of light. I saw the, the virtue, the, the qualities uh, upon the face of the, of the angels of heaven and the fear and horror upon the faces of angels of darkness, demons. Their faces are, uh, are just covered in fear and horror. You know how afraid they are when you speak the truth and you confess the truth. In a couple of days, more than 10,000 people watched a, a, a video clip of, of the, our sermon where I said the people that had come out of us and uh, persecute the church will not have salvation, whatever their church they're going to. In a few days, more than 10,000 people uh, watch this little clip of my of the sermon. Who is he? Who does he think he is? And especially those who left this church are the ones commenting. One brother says, "What do I do?" They sent this to me. One sister that that left our church. She was she was, used to be a sister. She sends this video. Uh, and the brother, one of the brothers said, what do I do? She sent this to me. You should say to her, you need to fear. This is a human fear. If you left from us, why do you want to communicate with us? If we're not normal, if we're fanatics, then don't communicate with us. Why do you want to be together with us in on in, on, uh, uh, in other places. We are the holy nation of God, and we've decided to hallow the Lord within our heart. We had decided to sanctify ourselves and sanctify ourselves from lawless men, lawless people, and not communicate with them because that's what it's written in Scripture. And every person that leaves it doesn't matter from what church and persecutes that church, that person needs to be disqualified from the church and not communicated with. Not just in, from this church, but any church where this, is, this person leaves and persecutes the people. Of course, when people uh, go from one club to another, these clubs, so-called uh, churches, of course, they're not disqualified from those churches because they come from one Muslim into another. If they would have left a living church, then they would have been put under a warning or excluded from the church. This program, the, the fear of the Lord and the fear of man, are two programs. The, again, program of eternal death has his 
comes from the fallen cherubim containing his qualities and his nature. The first Adam, due to disobedience to God, was transformed into the programmable system of the fallen angel and inherited from him a program opposite of God's fear, which was passed down to all mankind and came to be called the fear of man, which is contrary to the fear of God. Some people confuse the fear of man and the fear of God. They have two different natures and qualities. The character included in the fear of the Lord, as with the previous qualities, is prescribed in Scripture for creating prayer as a commandment and a requirement and a direct order. If it's not fulfilled, the verdict is death and a final break of your peaceful relationship with God. The fear of the Lord is a program identifying the life of God, is identified as the spring of the wisdom of God and as a carrier and demonstrator of this wisdom. And as a program of God, it is able to exist and demonstrate itself in nothing else but a programmable system identifying the wisdom of the heart, which is the heart of a born-from-God man, that becomes a possessor of a faithful mind abiding in the commandments of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Psalm 110.10 We've noted that the reason for many misconceptions and wrongs is what our mind is dependent upon. If we place our mind in dependence of man, we will be pleasing because of our weakness, their ignorance, and their religious ambition. If we place our mind in dependence of the traditions of man, then for the sake of of those religious conclaves or traditions, we will remove or move the commandments of God aside. Just as the religious Jewish uh, elite of the time did do this, if we place our mind in dependence of logical thinking or obtained experience, we will be far from the fear of the Lord. <clears throat> Although the fear of the Lord as the wisdom of God isn't against logical or rational thinking, because of its eternal being or existence and exalted nature in the fourth dimension, and the physical world as well, it does not depend on logic and governs logic. Therefore, only when we, contrary to many human authorities, place our mind in dependence from the revelation of Scripture, that is when we will be able to be filled with the fear of the Lord demonstrated in His divine and exceeding wisdom. We know <clears throat> that the world we live in has many forms of existing fear and even more phobias and Practically, the entire world today is underpinned by fear and phobias. But all of these forms of fear come from one wellspring, the fallen cherubim. These fears were inherited from the first Adam when he sinned and were passed on genetically to all mankind. And further, all of these forms of fear do not parallel or identify with the unique and great nature of fear that comes from God and is passed down by right of birth from God to man. We need to keep in mind that there is a healthy form of fear that exists as well. This is the format of healthy thinking that does not yield suffering. Any form of fear, <coughs> and so when a person's afraid, uh, and it pretty much this fear defiles his sober uh, soberness or his ability to think soberly or clearly. A person's afraid when uh, to be to get sick when he has no 
uh, no signs that he would get sick with that illness. These phobias aren't simple. They, psychologists and people of medicine, if a per- say that if a person is afraid, this is faith, but a negative faith. Fear is a negative faith. Uh, it produces what you're afraid of something you don't have. If, <coughs> if uh, incorrect diagnosis was given and they'd say you have cancer and you don't have it and you believe the doctor, you're afraid, and your system, this fear, begins to produce the cell of fear, the cell of cancer. And in time, this cancer will spread through the body. And especially doctors doctors know this who have dedicated themselves to the devil, especially. When you go to the, to the hospital, you need to pray and say, Lord, send me a doctor who is not a Satanist, who truly desires to uh, treat his patients. A lot of doctors don't want to treat their patients, but destroy their patients. They say, no, you have this and this, and they force uh, this information upon you. The diagnosis, doctors know the same uh, the same kind of uh, symptoms can mean many different things. And so based upon their diagnosis, you can say you have this or you have something else. <clears throat> and because we're children of God, if we sense that from this person there's something demonic, we need to change the doctor. You have the power of God, you have the word and the Holy Spirit that will protect you. You don't need to be afraid. And so when people are, fra- are afraid, this does happen. Any form of fear that does not come from God yields suffering. At the same time, the fear of the Lord prompts a trembling reverence before God and an unexplainable admiration or delight as it places man in the safest place called God. As it is written, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. 1 John 4.18 God is the holy love, the selective love, not a tolerant love. He loves those who love him and hates those who hate him. He does not love us as we're used to saying we, he loves us as who we, as we are. There's nothing like that in scripture that he loves us as we are. This is what uh, preachers like to say often. God loves people that are in bondage of sin but want to become free and hate the sin. Those he loves. But a person that drinks sin as water and legalizes sin and says that this is okay, these are, these are the kind of people God hates. He does not love these kinds of people. He does not call those that are in slavery of sin as sinners. He calls them his own. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to destroy the shackles of sin. Those who want to break free, you will be broken. You will break free and you will become free because God has enough strength. If you hate sin and want to Break free from it, you will break free. Just listen, because you will become free by hearing the word. Jesus says, and you will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. 
And you can't know the truth just reading the Word of God. You need to read it. But faith comes not from reading the Word, but hearing the Word. When a person sent by God and is anointed by the Holy Spirit and speaks His Word, it becomes living. And that is what makes you free. And so, if our worship is done out of is if our worship is done out of the fear of the Lord, contained within the twelve precious stones of the breastplate of judgment, then it cannot be accepted by God. And that is specifically why any attempt to enter the presence of God, to call upon God, or to serve God without the presence of the fear of the Lord, deeply offends God, does not consider God, and actually resists God. The absence of the fear of the Lord within the heart of a man testifies about the fact that this person is bound by the fear of man or human fear. And so that's why people who have the fear of man that come to God, but who have not received the fear the fear of the Lord, if they would have received the fear of the Lord, he would have thrown out the fear of man. But they did not re- receive the fear of the Lord, and so they come, they receive salvation, but they don't receive and are filled with the fear of the Lord, and that is why they are cowardly. And these people will be marching at the front. At the parade that will be marching to hell, they will be going at the front. Revelations 21.8, but the cowardly, you see how they are first, and then after them the unbelieving, then abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The word fear, wisdom, and commandment when it comes to the nature of God are identical as they identify the moral virtues of God. And because they are identical, the one word describes the other word as they come one from the other and authenticate one the other. This is specifically why the fear of the Lord is the true wisdom of God presented in the commandments of the Lord. At the same time, true wisdom in the commandments of the Lord is identified as the fear of the Lord identifying the given law of God. Third, what price? This is the third question. What price or what conditions do we need to fulfill so we can be filled with the fear of the Lord in prayer and abide within the fear of the Lord? I will remind us that the boundary of the fear of the Lord as a program of God is the boundary of the heart of a person that fears God, as the heart is a programmable system for the fear of the Lord. The first condition that I would like to focus upon for receiving the seed of the fear of the Lord into your heart is the necessity to clothe yourself into the mantle of a student of the student of Christ, raising or elevating you to the status of a servant of the Lord. Psalm 34:11. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. <clears throat> the condition. Come, you children. Listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Before we talk about the aspect of learning, we need to pay attention to one required condition, and that is our relationship with our teacher or our father, to whom we need to come to so we can listen to him and to learn the fear of the Lord from him, which contains the given law of God. Not, I have my own head and I have my own Bible and I can understand everything by myself, That's not what it says here. It says, come, you children, listen to me. And so we need to ask the question, by what criteria do we need to determine the person to whom we need to come to to listen to him so we can learn about the fear of the Lord? 
because as unfortunate as it is, there are many people that the church, due to its ignorance, makes their teachers. This is by the path of a democratic vote or those that have placed themselves. These, they make their teachers going against the order implemented and established by God and Scripture. Here's what Apostle Paul wrote regarding these unfortunate teachers who are ignorant when it comes to knowledge of the elementary principles of Christ, who imagine themselves as pilots of the nation of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power and from such people turn away. For of this sort are these who creep into households and make captive of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth, men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. 2 Timothy 3, 5 through 9. <clears throat> Moses is a, is a person sent by God, who established his ministry by the means of specific supernatural signs. Janus and Jambres are people who by the means of occult acts place themselves as pilots of all nations, living upon the territory of Egypt, including Israel. We need to ask the question, by what signs are we able to separate persons resisting the truth with perverse minds and ignorant in the faith from persons filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom that comes from above? Jake, uh, James says here, 3, 1 through 2, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. And so the teacher will receive a stricter judgment than the student, <clears throat> for we are we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to brittle the whole body. James 3, 1 through 2. So the teacher needs to not stumble in word. <clears throat> How do you determine him? How do you determine this true teacher from a false teacher? According to the ordinances of Scripture, a person that is... First, not to stumble in words means not make yourself a teacher and not follow after the democratic majority, promoting him by the way of voting to this responsible role. Second, to not stumble in word means by uh, be taught gentleness to restrain and humble your body in accordance to the required requirements of the unchanging will of God written in Scripture. To not stumble in word means not debase and not pervert the teaching of the truth to please or satisfy the flesh and the thoughts. Fourth, to not stumble in word means to carry responsibility over only for those aspects or areas that we are trusted with according to the conditions of Scripture. As soon as we begin speaking the right words about those people that if we will speak the right words, but over those that we don't carry responsibility for, we will be stumbling in word. To not stumble in word means carry responsibility only for those aspects or areas that we are trusted with according to the conditions of Scripture. To not stumble in word means take the guilt upon yourself before God only for those aspects or areas that we carry responsibility for. To not stumble in word means lead a sober form of life, not allowing yourself to be tempted by anyone we get in contact with. To not stumble in words means not to have the nature of a money lover, but demonstrate holiness in accordance to the demands of the commandments of the Lord. And not to stumble in word means be a doer or fulfiller of the word that comes out of your mouth. So, 
it not happened, the situation, when we load upon the shoulders of students of the Lord burdens hard to bear, but ourselves not lift a finger to move them. In Luke 11:46, it says, And Jesus said, Woe to you also lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Speaking about obeying the person that would be able to teach us the fear of the Lord, it is us and not someone else who is responsible before God of who we subject ourselves to in obedience. Those people that would speak deception and would lay burdens upon us hard to bear, or those people that are able to discipline their body and take our guilt upon themselves. A teacher, the pastor of the church, needs to take the guilt of the church upon himself before God. It's what I do, continuously, praying about you, because it's my role. I say, Lord, forgive. May it be on me. I am obligated to take this upon myself before God. Moses said, Lord, destroy me, not them. I am responsible for them. God started to destroy the people, but said to Aaron, quickly go take, put coals into your censer and stand between the dead and the living and the destruction will stop. God listens to those teachers whom he places when they begin to pray so that the Lord uh, turn his wrath aside, God hears them because that's why he put them there. But when people uh, elect their own teachers or people make themselves teachers, God does not listen to them. And, of course, they will never pray for you. They do this only all of, all of what they do to have some kind of fame or to have some kind of greed. And so speaking again about being the person that we would be able to teach us the fear of the Lord, it is us, not someone else, who is responsible before God, of who we subject ourselves to in obedience. To be an obedient student is to be an obedient son. In the ancient law, that was inspired by God. A student was always considered as a son, and a son was always considered a student. And if this law was broken and the son refused to be a student of his father, then this kind of son lost the status of sonhood and was cursed. And the opposite, if a student followed his teacher, then he was considered his son and inherited the inheritance of his teacher. You know that teachers, prophets of Israel, if the, his son was not his student, but his student was some, someone else, then the possessions of this prophet were passed down to his student and not to his son who refused to be a student. In the heavenly hierarchy, the status of a student is identified as the status of a servant of the Lord, and it is the greatest virtue before which all angelical hierarchies bow down with trembling and awe. Because the status of a servant of the Lord is a willing and desired acceptance of the law-given authority of God over yourself, which contains the will of God, the good, acceptable, and perfect will. A student, or one that learns according to Scripture, is not a temporary position, but a natural state of the heart, which is an irreversible, continual, and unchanging sign of the faithfulness of God.
Sometimes people say, how long am I going to be a student? One woman, she really wanted to be a teacher. How long am I going to be a student? Uh, I want to be a teacher. And right now this woman is running from one mausoleum to another, from another club to another, trying with her, she always liked to speak little short poems. Uh, A a student is a state of the heart, it's not a temporary uh, position. Here's what it says about Christ, the Son of God, Isaiah 54 through 6. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season. The tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. A student, he possesses the tongue of the learned, and he's in the likeness of of, of a student. He is he is a student, and he can hear and listen. I would never have heard the Lord and the revelation in my spirit if I would not continually incline my ear, and my heart would not be in the state of a student that learns ready to learn further. Tongue of the learned or the word of wisdom possessing the ability and power to strengthen the one that is weary in waiting for the fulfillment of the given by God promise is actually the confession of the revelation of the Holy Spirit revealing the meaning of the commandments and promises of the Lord which is the faith of the heart. And if we paid attention, the tongue of the learned and the function of the word of wisdom is a privilege exclusively for the students of Christ, receiving and keeping the commandments of the Lord from a place by God teacher. A student makes his ear attentive to the revelations of the commandments of the Lord, identifying the wisdom of God, and and this gives him the ability to know the fear of the Lord. (laughs) Proverbs 2, 1 through 5. My son, if you receive my words... Again, it's not about, uh, again, it's not where I'm going to be reading, but our relationship, again, with the Father. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Knowledge about God can be found in the fear of the Lord. If you will be a student, this kind of faithful student, then you will know the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. The phrase, if you receive my words, reveals that there are conditions that the student needs to satisfy so that the word of the teacher could become the faith of his heart, giving him authority for the right to know the fear of the Lord. This is evident in the words of Christ. Luke 14, 26-35 If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, Yes, and his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. 
And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost? Two parables are brought forth here to show what a student is, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it began to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going... And so the second parable in the, sec- in the same place, or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else while the other is still a great a way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ear to hear, let him hear. Luke 14, 26-35 If we paid attention to know the fear of the Lord presented in the building of the tower from the position where a person can hear God and God is able to hear man, it is necessary to become a student of Christ so that you can follow Him. If you're not a student, and trying to follow after him upon his conditions, he will not hear you, you will not hear him, and all of this will be in vain. You will just be satisfying your religious ego, but God doesn't hear you because you're not a student. Continuing to be a student of Christ, in in these two parables, looking at these two parables, it is necessary to carry your cross, and to carry your cross, it is necessary to die for your nation, for your house, and for your destructive will or desires. Otherwise, we will be like salt that lost its flavor, which is the holiness of our essence. Salt is a symbol of holiness, and it protects us from coming in contact with unclean thoughts and with the unclean persons that previously once were holy and then defiled their conscience by resisting the truth and suffered shipwreck in their faith. However, to more clearly understand within the two parables of Christ the conditions that we need to fulfill in order to receive the right to be to be right to the power to become students of the Lord and get to know the fear of the Lord, it is necessary for us at least in short, look at the promise contained in these parables. The symbol of the tower built within the wall of our city symbolizes our perfection in Christ Jesus. A tower is never just by itself. In scripture, when it's talking about a tower, then it's talking about a tower that's in a wall a city surrounded by a wall, and in these walls there is a tower built that is so, so that from this wall can, from this tower they can see the enemy that's why it says that your nose is as the tower of Lebanon so that you can with the spirit sense uh, that it's an enemy coming even from afar it says I am a wall and my breasts like towers then I became in his eyes as one who found peace songs of Solomon 8.10 a person that possessed in his heart a tower is one that is perfect this is a perfect person, that a person having perfection. These are people that have placed the word of God as 
a priority in their life. As God has placed his word over himself and made this word his authority, in the same way we need to place his word over ourselves and make it our authority, not our head. When we place the word of God, there's an order. If a person says, I have my own head, I have my own Bible, then this person is lawless or unclean or just ignorant because the word of God cannot say I have my own head or have my own Bible this is the Bible of God this is God's book this is not mine the fact that I purchased it and it belongs to me but it isn't mine it continues to be the word of God and I can't understand it if the Holy Spirit does not reveal the meaning of it if it's mine I would have understood When they say, I have my Bible, that means that this person uh, is ignorant. A person that fears and trembles before God's word will never say such words. Building yourself into such a tower is the result of us leaving childish things or spiritual infancy where we looked at the commandments and promises of God as in a mirror dimly. To leave childish things where we were attracted by various winds of doctrine and saw everything implemented by God in a dim light, relying upon the abilities of our intellect means to die for your nation, for your house, and for your corrupt desires or corrupt will by the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we can possess perfection in Christ Jesus when by the cross of our Lord Jesus we die for our personal opinions and interpretations and will begin to respect and treat the word of God as God respects and treats his word. But on this one will I look, on him who is born of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Isaiah 66, 2. It's talking about students. We're talking about the nature of a student. In result of such respect to the word of God and the format of his given law, we become an image of his tower. Or we're built into this tower built in the wall that gives us authority to, to the right to hear and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit within our heart. And this condition provides God grounds to hear our voice. Habakkuk 2, 1-4 through I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me. He's saying what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. I will not tarry. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. We know that the reader is the Lord, and so that he can simply read how we read the promises of God that we're receiving, that's how we will receive them. If it will be just dimly seen, the one that will read, he will not be guessing, he just will take this and move it aside because it's unreadable. He will not be able to work with such a person. He'll read only with the, or have a relationship only with those people that the teaching of Christ 
Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh, is written clearly upon his heart. All of the promises of God, although they tarry, you know that they will come to pass. Continue to trust and look upon them, not turn, pushing them aside and not turning your eyes away from them as the wife of Lot did. Look at the promise that I've given to you and... But she, the wife of Lot, turned uh, back. Whatever we look at transforms us into the image of that object we look at. God wants us to look at this image and it will then be clearly upon our heart and when the time passes, the promise will be fulfilled. A person will, who's the reader will look at it, God, and will say, let it be according to your word. Remember, as he said to the woman who had touched the robe of Jesus, she said, if I just touch his cloak, I will be healed. And she did, and she was healed. And Jesus said, your faith healed you, because her faith was absolutely in accordance to God's faith, was clearly written upon the tablets of her heart. The presence of a tower within the heart of a person gives him the ability to wait for the fulfillment of promises that are clearly transcribed in his heart, so that the reader, being God, would be able to easily read it. The symbol, let's now look at the symbol of the parable about the war conflict between two kings. This is a symbol of a person dying for his independence, for the benefit of being dependent upon God and doing so accepts the foundation upon which the given law stands. This is the commandment to honor God with your tithes and your offerings. Every parable in Scripture in, is unique by itself in that it carries and includes sacred principles and laws of God's kingdom that in a primary way build and define the unique relationship between God and His creation. As it is written, I will open my mouth in a parable, I will utter dark sayings of old that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may uh, arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the work of God, but keep His commandments, Psalm 78, 2-6-7. According to the meaning contained in the given parable, the relationship of the two kings in this parable is the relationship of two sovereign individuals reigning over themselves. One, the king, is one who rules over himself when you're sovereign. One of these individuals symbolizes Christ, and the other symbolizes man, that is a candidate for the right to be his student, a student of Christ. According to the norms of Scripture, a student is a follower of the teaching of his teacher, using the instruction of his teacher. In ancient times, in order to be a student, a person first needed to literally leave all and follow his teacher wherever he would go. Not just be a student, but a student of a prophet. You remember when Elijah cast his mantle upon Elisha when he was working in his field. He says, you're my, this act in history was, I take you as my servant. You will be my student and my servant. He quickly said, wait, I will go and Say goodbye to my family. He will. He he uh, he cut up his uh, oxen and cooked the meat and gave it to the people there. 
he had 12 pairs of oxen. Do you think that Elijah threw his mantle upon a person who had a heart that was foolish? No, he saw this person. He had 12 pairs of oxen. He was on the 12th. And he followed him and became his student. And then following time or past the time once the time passed and Elijah was taken he received a double portion of power and he split if you remember the river and he passed over it and then the people around knew that Elisha received the power of Elijah to be a student is to be a servant, leave everything and follow after this person. And second, the student received the right to serve his teacher and to serve your teacher at all times was considered a privilege. It appears that if a student did not serve his teacher, then it was not he was not able to learn anything from him. And practically, to be a student meant dedicate yourself to be a willing slave of your teacher. Considering such a relationship between a student and the teacher as the norm of a very deep, close, and unique relationship came about and was built similar to a relationship of a loving and caring father and a loving son who zealously serves his father and pursues the interests of his father. Therefore, in Scripture, a student often calls his teacher a father, and the teacher calls his student a son. Because of this, a student, while his teacher is alive, shares with him his destiny and often stands in the role of his teacher or presents his interests. When the teacher dies, then all of his virtues, positions, and status by right passed on to his student. Therefore, serving the teacher first was considered the price of learning, and second, a practice due to which the student up obtained the status of his teacher or became as the teacher. It is interesting that fact that Jesus in the given parable symbolically presents himself as a king with 10,000 and the candidate for the right to be a student of Christ, a king of 10,000. The first relationship between these two kings relationship is enemy-like as we can see it's as enemy-like or as each pursuing their own personal goal and their own personal interests which is why between them there is a conflict Jesus as king with the 20,000 is wanting to rule over the opponent attempting to be a student and who rules over 10,000 and then the one focused on learning as the king that rules over the 10,000 often after thinking about it weighs everything and decides to make the right decision and sends his delegation to ask for conditions of peace. In discussing peace, the one desiring to learn denies everything that he has and everything he possesses and gives himself and everything he owns into the authority of the other king that has more power. We need to take into consideration that Jesus will never attempt to rule over something that does not belong to him by right. Since the one pursuing learning or to be a student makes the decision to follow him, but he did not satisfy one condition and that is to carry his cross. This is why between them there was a conflict. And practically the requirements of the king with more power are in the following words. So when Jesus heard these things he said to him, you still lack one thing sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Luke 18.22 These words were spoken to a very wealthy man who followed the law of Moses from his youth, he fulfilled the law, including giving God the tenth part of his income. 
But deep inside of himself, he knew that he does not possess eternal life and continues to be a servant of sin and death. The thing is that in Scripture, the number 10 is directly linked to the law of Moses or reliance upon your flesh. <clears throat> the king with 10,000. Therefore, bringing the tenth part of your income into the temple, he in this way trusted he would receive justification and and it would inherit eternal life. At the same time, the number 20 is linked to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, where a person receiving justification freely by faith in Christ Jesus while giving the tenth part of his income performed righteousness, and doing so revealed the power of the kingdom of heaven in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The one and the other gave their tithe, but the one gave his tithe so that he can receive justification, eternal life. And this one already had eternal life. And honored the Lord with his, with his tithes and offerings, he performed righteousness. Numbers 32, 11 through 12. What is the number 20? Surely none of the men who came up from Egypt from 20 years old and above shall see the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they have not uh, wholly followed me, except Caleb, the son of Jephun, and Kenizzite and Joshua the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. Numbers 32:11 through 12. According to this command, we can see that people up to 20 years old were not accounted sin, but the people who were 20 and older were accounted sin. The reason is because those who all who came out of Egypt were circumcised with the circumcision uh, made of hand, uh, from men's hands, or the, was the work of man. And so those that came out that were younger than 20 were not circumcised, but they were circumcised in heart. They later, of course, if you remember, at the at the at the shore at the at the uh, beach area of the Jordan, they uh, they uh, they were circumcised. The ones that were 20 and older were always looking to Egypt, remembering the garlic and the melons and everything else. The uh, the ones that were 20 and younger did not know these things. The only thing that they knew was the taste of manna. For the spirit of man, it's absolutely not important materialistic values, what kind of food or what clothes we're wearing. Absolutely. For the Spirit, the Word of God is important. He has only one food, manna. He needs nothing else. And so when we meditate, when we sing, when we worship, this is the food of the Spirit. Everything else is not food for the Spirit. And so they had a circumcised heart. The number 20 here is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Apostle Paul writes, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might... And so the one has confidence in the flesh is is uh, the 10,000, the one with the 10,000. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal persecu persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the, law, in the law blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ, yet indeed I also count all 
all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And so to willingly refuse everything that you have, count as nothing, everything you have, for the benefit of being his student, the student of Christ, we need to by cross, the cross of Lord, the Lord Jesus die for the life in the flesh and change your uh, reaction, your behavior towards everything then in your life. So that in the list of your priorities, uh, put your life in the flesh or life in the world as second to uh, the spiritual life. And this is the price for learning, losing your soul in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving us the ability to take the right position when it comes to the kingdom of God and his, and his power. That is worshiping God, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, Romans 14 and 17. This means to receive the promise of the Holy Spirit upon the conditions of God as the guarantee of our inheritance, called to present within our born spirit the kingdom of heaven and his power. And so the all of the aspects of of our life that are experiencing destruction by the death destruction and death by the cross of the Lord Jesus open up life and resurrection and will restore our destroyed and will return what, what is lost and so bringing your tithes and your offerings to God that is to his delegated authority we will not be trying to obtain righteousness we will perform righteousness and will rely not upon the works of the flesh but righteousness which we received freely by grace in other words if we in giving our tithes and offerings are not performing the righteousness of God between us and God there's a conflict and then absolutely not important whether we have success prosperity or we do not we're still going in the opposite direction from the uh, which is not the eternal life that we're thinking we're going to. The fact that we were not able to confirm our learning by honoring God and giving ourselves to God with our tithes and our offerings. And of course, if we will not look at the instructions according to which we need to by the cross of the Lord Jesus to lose our fleshly life, take our cross and follow our teacher, the above-mentioned uh, examples we just studied will not have any use. And so to look at how the old person is being eliminated by the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ that gives us the power to be students of Jesus Christ and the right to be dressed into uh, dressing our body into its new person. We need to look at the life of the flesh and life in the spirit as two opposite rivers. In our body, there are two powerful rivers flowing. And these rivers that are opposite of each other are the river of the Nile and the river of eternal... That's the river of eternal death and Genesis 13.10 and Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plains of Jordan that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah like the garden of the Lord like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar 
And so the land of Egypt was watered by the same uh, waters that the uh, land of the Lord or the or the the garden of the Lord was watered with. We know that the land of, of Egypt uh, was watered by the Nile River. The Nile is one of the ancient, uh, most ancient rivers of, of the world. It flows through the deserts and and so Egypt pretty much has no rain. Without the waters of the Nile, Egypt would be just as the dead uh, wilderness as the Sahara. And so the Nile pretty much brings forth a lot of nutrients and the delta of the Nile also has a lot of uh, a lot of good uh, nutrients and other things that are, are are benefit to the Egyptian land or Egyptian people we can remember or see this in Deuteronomy where it talks about the land that is to be watered as a garden of uh, of olive trees in the delta the river is split into a couple of different rivers and so you can see uh, as, as such expressions as the waters of Egypt or the rivers of Egypt uh, because it splits into different rivers and in scripture the river Nile is not the river of the Garden of Eden but also the river of life the river Nile is light of life or twilight. The river of Nile is the main life source and artery of Egypt, and even if today, for some reason, the Nile would no longer exist, then the civilization of Egypt as it is would immediately stop existing. And so all of the life of Egypt literally dependent, de depended and depends today from the Nile, which is why the river of Egypt was seen as a god and as a god they brought offerings and sacrifices to it. That's why the Pharaoh was afraid of, uh, the Pharaoh became afraid of the Israelite nation when they became too big or, or the land, the nation uh, uh, grew. Uh, that's why he commanded that every newborn uh, boy uh, in the families of the, of the Hebrews would be thrown into the Nile. It says in Exodus 1.22, So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. As in the life of uh, of, uh, of of people, uh, the very first gen gen the genetical line that comes from the husbands uh, and the and the the husbands that come. This gene these genetics continue in the wife uh, even after she, if she remarries another man. That still continues in her 
because it is pure. And so the Pharaoh perfectly understood. That's why he left the daughters. He needed these women so that he can multiply the Egyptian people by using the daughters. And that's why he stopped these... uh, uh, Pretty much he attempted to stop the increase of the nation of Israel by eliminating the males and leaving the females for uh, multiplying the Egyptian people or increasing the numbers of Egyptian people. And so when we are still infants, spiritual infants, we receive seed uh, and we are not yet able to grow this seed, but God unusually blesses this infant at the time of this, uh, as he saved Egypt from hunger at his time. And so this was a harvest, obviously, that came also when they destroyed the boys uh, and uh, the shedding of innocent blood. Revelation 16, 1 through 6. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple. If you remember that Moses hit the waters, they became blood. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. Then the Lord angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be. Because you have judged uh, these things, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. You have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. Revelation 16, 1-6. Because the men of flesh uh, mocked the spiritual, God will give them blood to drink. God will make their life as death for them. They will shout aloud because all the illnesses and curse curses will come upon them. And we will look at this a little later so that we can, uh, we'll look more at who these males were that were thrown into the river later. First, we need to identify who, what this uh, river of death is in us and what is the river of life is in us that is called to replace the river of death. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood, cried out and said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. We're talking here about learning. Again, only students will come to him. He cried out and said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Where will this river flow? From from his heart. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so the river of life in us is the Holy Spirit. He needs to become this river of life, but only received in the form of our master and not as our guest. According to this place of scripture, the river of life is called to replace the river of death in our body. This is the Holy Spirit of God or the life of God in our body. The river of death in our body is our sinful conduct passed down to us from our fathers. So our life is in the blood of our body and our blood is the carrier of the genetical information that has the program of death. 
And so now let's look at scripture and look at who these infants that were thrown into the river are and how the river of death as a sinful conduct passed down to us from our parents as the are as the shedding of the innocent blood of these young males that were thrown into the river, the Nile River. And so the symbol in scripture of Egypt symbolized our body. Assyria symbolizes our soul. At the same time, Israel symbolizes our spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless. You know that uh, destruction in the body is a blemish, as to say. And so when Christ comes, when he, when he comes, those that will need to be raptured, they'll need to not have in their, in their heart this element of, of decay. If the law of sin and death will be in them, then they will have this decay in themselves. This thought is well shown in three symbolic nations that God at the end times will make as one. He needs to make them as one. He needs to redeem our body here on the earth. And whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my, my inheritance. Isaiah 19.25 As Israel symbolizes the newborn spirit of a person, these newborn males in Israel is the fruit of our spirit. These are the qualities of character that are in God's likeness. And they are in all goodness, righteousness, and truth the fruit of the mouth that glorifies God. These are these infants, these male infants. The daughters are when we receive the word. We can receive different word. We can receive from our head, from our mind, and say the Holy Spirit uh, had said something. Often people that are led by their own mind, they think that they're being led by the Holy Spirit. They see that their intellect is as if they're uh, the Holy Spirit. And they say that my head is the Holy Spirit because my head, my intellect is capable when reading the scriptures to interpret what it says. And these people say then in this way that their head, their intellect is for them the Holy Spirit. But we see that this is not so, that the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And so the fruit of the Spirit in these male in, uh, children and the reaction of the river of life and it is against the Egyptian river of death. The renewed mind that is within our heart, it needs to confront and replace this river of death with the river of life. Which is why it brings fear upon the Pharaoh that rules in the Egypt of our body, about whom Apostle Paul said, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. Romans 6.12 Our intellect is sin. May this sin not reign in our body. Don't allow 
your kingdom to be ruled by your mind or physical mind. And so the reigning sin with its lusts by the genetical code confronts the fruit of our spirit and then drowns these fruits in its waters of death. That's what it says in the book of Galatians. Apostle Paul writes, For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. Galatians 2.19 Because they drowned these fruits is not as bad. Moses, it is bad, but Moses himself, if you remember, was saved and he he was uh, drawn from the water, if you remember. <clears throat> the essence of this is that not looking at the fact that we have the fruits of the Spirit, these are these male uh, babies, these male children in our body. The law of, of God con continues that uh, reveals sin giving power to sin, which is the old person with his deeds and his armies. Apostle Paul, explaining this thought further, in the same book wrote, Galatians 5, 16 through 23, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and there are these are contrary one to another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the work of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, <clears throat> idolatry or sorcery is when we replace God's word with our own, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Galatians 5:16-23. And so the law no longer is your enemy in this case, it becomes your friend. According to the received bias information, we conclude that to drink the Holy Spirit or to drink from the Holy Spirit means act according to the Spirit, live according to the Spirit, and walk in the Spirit. To drink from the Nile is to live by the flesh, behave according to the flesh, and walk in the flesh, which will bring us to illnesses, poverty, and untimely death. To drink from the Nile is dangerous. If we will use this, the water of life, then all of our unfortunate situations, poverty, curses, and the inherited sins uh, will be destroyed or annihilated, which is why we need to live according to the Spirit and call the non-existent as existent. God will, at one time, will fulfill the things you are confessing. And so it's not possible to live according to the Spirit or to live the waters of life until we uh, judge the Nile, that is the sinful conduct passed down from our fathers, the sinful man. It's not possible to live at the same time by the Spirit and the, and the flesh. Sweet water will not flow from a river of death and bitter water will not flow from a river of life. That's why God, through the prophet, turns to Israel who are attempting to, de to deal with their problems in the, by the waters of the Nile. 
And now why take the road to Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor? Jeremiah 2.18. <clears throat> the water that we drink from is the one from will be the one that we depend upon. And that's the one that will be in us. So to drink the water of life that flows into eternal life, we need to confront the river of death. And to do this, we need to have a rod that is our renewed mind, that is able to turn the waters of the Nile into blood. And we will remember that to, we can hit with the, our rod our own Nile, and only in this aspect can we exalt God over the gods of the, of the Nile. And all of the following miracles and signs are called to exalt all of God all over all of the other idols and gods of Egypt that were also done by the rod of Moses and Aaron, if you remember. To throw your rod is to lose your soul in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. To take it by the tail is to call the non-existent as existent, and the rod will again become a rod in your hands, and it won't no, will no longer be uh, your rod, it will be God's rod, and you will not say what you want, but what God wants, and do not what you want, but what God wants. And so hitting with your rod, like... Uh, uh, hitting the waters with uh, with your rod is utilizing the power in the cross of Christ. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 16:25. Here we're talking about learning. Only one that carries this cross can be a student of the Lord. I want us to pay attention here. It's talking about transformation or uh, turning the rivers of death into the rivers of life. When we lose our soul, this is the river of death, but when we lose it, we obtain it again in the form of live, uh, the living river, or river of life. Before I remind us of the principles of collaborating our cross with the cross of Christ, I want to remind us that it is unique, the blood of Jesus Christ, uh, and it will not have any use without the cross. Only when they collaborate together, the blood, the truth about the blood, and the truth about the cross, will they be functioning. According to Scripture, we know that the cross of Christ is the only and exclusive ab ability that opens a, a free access to the imperishable inheritance that is in the blood of Christ. For to please the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Colossians 1.19 through 20. Every time we talk about the power of the blood and the power of the cross of Christ, I remind us that the work of the plan of the devil, that is, uh, practiced already by professionals is to separate the truth about the cross, uh, blood of Christ from the truth about the cross of Christ and present to people only that side, angle or side of the truth that would please his fleshly desires, that they're that would pretty much not require them to pay any price where everything is paid for and you don't have to do anything. In the light where the blood of Christ is presented as in a deceptive manner, it's as if something is presented to satisfy all of the desires of the flesh. This interpretation 
has no place for the fulfillment of the desires of God because it is only fulfilling and is being exploited for the desires of man, the uncrucified nature of man. At this, at the same time, what there, what is presented is untrue. The shed blood, first of all, was called to satisfy the requirements of the holiness of God and only after then to collaborate with man and the truth of the cross of Christ, uh, the, the truth of the blood would be able to fulfill the desire of man. Understanding any promise and accomplishing any truth is the collaborative effort between you and God. And the measure in which we understand the condition giving God the a basis to fulfill the given to us promise in Scripture, that's the measure that we will allow God to lead us into the inheritance of those promises. Considering this unchanging principle, we will remember the collaboration of our cross with the cross of Christ. And we know that this collaboration of our cross with the cross of Christ is truly wondrous. We've talked about it many times. I wanted to remind us of it, but I think we don't have any more time today. So I won't stop uh, on this. In your cell groups, you can uh, go through it yourself and remember uh, how to collaborate your cross with the cross of Christ and the difference between the cross of Christ and our cross. To carry your cross means to collaborate your cross with the cross of Christ. The cross is the absolute perfect will of God. For Christ, this was the will of the Father, to go upon the cross to redeem the world. This is also our will because in carrying our cross, we lost our soul, we died for our nation, for our house, and our destructive desires, and in carrying our cross, we allow, we're, it allows us to uh, remain dead for what we died for, and by the cross we will not return to those things. They won't, you will not say, my nationality, or lift up your nationality above others. Or you will not talk about your house or your uh, where you came from that's greater than some than everyone else around you, because there's no tool that would separate you from all of these things. The cross divides; it separates; it sanctifies, continually sanctifying you for your dedication. Amen. Let us pray. Uh, however, who is comfortable, let us pray and thank God for the word we've received today. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we worship before you upon this blessed place, and we thank you that you have allowed us to become your students, that you have opened for us this privilege, this great position that the heavenly hierarchies bow down before your angels. We thank you for the opportunity to know this and we desire to be your students and to follow after you according to that order that you have written upon the pages of your word of your book may your holy people be blessed that have fallen before your feet and that have left everything and followed after you that have accepted the, your authority your delegation and your word in that delegation. We thank you, Father, that you call us to be sanctified, to 
a specific form of sanctification and the deeper and greater we dedicate ourselves, the deeper and greater we also separate ourselves from those who came out from us and those who remain with us. May your holy people be blessed. May they be given your boldness so that they do this not with sorrow but with joy. So that they with joy and gladness sanctify themselves and separate themselves from all unclean things. We thank you, Father, that you are our God and that we have this glorious promise. We thank you that you have opened our eyes and we can see in your word, your great riches and your great revelations. We thank you, Father, that you, your word continues to stay your own and without your revelation, our mind will not understand it and we're not attempting with our mind to do something we just prepare ourselves to listen to your word where we can receive your revelation those things and those truths that truth that you find necessary to give to us of course our mind is curious and is always trying to explain many truths or forms of truth that you will explain possibly later. We thank you that you give to us these revelations and our mind is humbled before you. But we're ready to receive those revelations that you re uh, revealed to us today. You opened up your heavens in these last times that kept this great inheritance to redeem our bodies from hellfire so that your son Jesus Christ would reign not just in our spirit but also in our body and in this way the law of sin and death would be able to transform into the law of the spirit of life and so we rejoice for the sanctification we worship before you our great God Son and Holy Spirit Amen our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. А теперь все вместе закончим наше богослужение неизменной манифестацией, могущему же соблюсти нас от падения и поставить пред славою Своею непорочными в радости единому премудрому Богу, Спасителю нашему, через Иисуса Христа, Господа нашего, слава и величие, сила и власть прежде всех веков, ныне и во все веки. Аминь.